do it. So chapter summaries. Nick, do you want to give your summary of chapter one? Yeah, so let's start off in chapter one. Seems like a good place to start. <clears throat> the best of songs opens with the Shulamite expressing her feelings and desire. She's in love with the king, verse four, and she desires intimacy, kisses, and companionship. Draw me after you, she says. But while Solomon is a man of the state, good character, the name smooth like oil, and doted on by many, turning inward in self-reflection, the Shulamite questions her own standing. She bears the dark, sunburned skin of a day laborer, a striking contrast with the pale skin of pampered court girls. Yet she's lovely, she says in verse 5, and Solomon calls her the most beautiful among women, verse 8. In his eyes, she is unparalleled in beauty. These are words of affection. There's uh, th these early chapters are the couple exchanging intimate conversation, uh, making love as maybe some of our uh, contemporary uh, experts on marriage would talk about, not in the physical sense, in the bedroom, but through words of affection and admiration. To borrow a, another well-known figure, these are words that are deposits in their love banks, which deepens their relationship in anticipation of the physical consummation after the wedding. So to her, he is my beloved. To him, she is my love. These are pet names, not unlike what couples today have, sweetie or honey or what have you. And while they cannot express their love behind closed doors because such behavior would be immoral, the whole world is green, verdant, and teeming with their love, verse 17. It is no wonder, then, that as Solomon and Shulamith verbally enhance their intimacy and deepen their relationship in purity, that the public, the others, ex exult and, and they rejoice with them, celebrating their love and their conformity to Yahweh's law. So that's what I see here in chapter one. Alex, what do you see going on in chapter one? Okay, chapter one. Uh, let's see, the, the first verse here, uh, well, verse two, you know, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. So, you know, the woman starts out right away. She wants to make out with Solomon. Uh, she proclaims that all the maidens love Solomon. And she's like, and rightly so. But what is this? She is being chosen by him? Ah, then let us run together. And then it says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Hmm. Why would the king bring a woman into his chambers? Doesn't sound like talking is the goal here, but rather a sexual encounter. Uh, yes, this woman is tanned from her long days of laboring in the fields. But how did she end up in the fields? It says her mother's sons, where does it say in verse 5 and verse 6, her mother's sons uh, were angry at her. Uh, her. Her laboring was a punishment. Her mother's son, that's a strange way to talk about your brothers, by the way. But anyway, her laboring was a punishment forced upon her by the anger of her mother's sons. And so uh, where does she labor exactly? Well, it says in the vineyards. But she says it leads to the neglect of her own vineyard. Well, what does that mean? It's important to note here, as many scholars have, that a vineyard is not just a vineyard in the Song of Solomon. This will be seen over and over and over again through the whole book, that vineyard is a euphemism for one's body, for a woman's body. And so I propose that she's a servant that cares for other women their bodies, their looks, while 
having to neglect her own body, her own looks. And this backdrop then, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, that would likely put her in a house, a community built specifically for raising virgins or concubines. So she goes on to ask, you know, where does Solomon, quote, pasture his flock? Where do you make him lie down at noon? Again, this is going to be another sexual euphemism used multiple times in the book, asking him basically, where does he want to meet for sex? As she asks, hey, why should I, uh, why should I veil myself beside the flocks of your companions? Well, a veiled woman, uh, according to Genesis 38 with Tamar, 14, verses 14 through 19, that's the uniform of a prostitute. In other words, why should she seek sexual encounter with other men when the one that she wants is Solomon? So tell me where you want to meet, basically, right? Where do you want to meet up? Solomon answers the woman and, and does a little playful thing with her, says, oh, you don't know where I am, huh? Well, follow the trail of my flock. Come and find me. And then here enters the chorus after that, which is a group of other women throughout the song who support the main character, saying that, hey, we're going to deck you out with jewelry, right? We're going to bling you up. And after Solomon and the, and the woman exchange compliments, she says that their couch is luxuriant. And that word luxuriant in the original language, it literally means leafy and green. And then she says the beams of their houses, plural houses, by the way, are cedars and cypresses. Again, these descriptions, they're alluding to a sexual encounter, and this time it's one that takes place in the forest. They're meeting out in the forest, in the countryside, uh, perhaps multiple times, and she says houses, plural, right? So they have sex on the forest floor, under the trees, and thus a leafy green couch in beams of cedar and cypress. And uh, by the way, even people who don't take the dream sequence approach as I'm taking, uh, they do have this reading as well. Uh, about sexual euphemism in chapter one. Yes, uh, there people find all sorts of interesting things. Some have sought to introduce the chaos of third parties and <laughs> speculative readings which present this love in a sordid light. The poetic expressions of him and her, though, paint a more compelling portrait of fidelity. As we come to chapter two, so hold Solomon. On one second. I just wanted one, one, one quick thing I thought of. Uh, in chapter one, right, let's say somebody wanted to take your approach that like this is um, the sexual euphemism is, is not talking about literal sex, but uh, uh, intimate conversations, I think is what you were uh, saying. So they're having these intimate conversations. Well, let's say somebody wanted to take your approach and like, you know, I do think this is about, you know, Solomon and, and his first wife is his most precious love. But I do see sexual activity here in chapter one. Nick, do you do you have any way? that that person could still keep your approach uh, while explaining the sexual content in chapter one, as opposed to, you know, saying it's sexual conversation, but not sexual like behavior. Do you have any outs for them? I could think of it's, a couple, but I just want to know if, if you think of any. It's anticipatory. Uh, you And so you have a lot of this that's the lead up. They, they have these, they're, they're not robots, right? They have these natural urges, these natural desires. Um, but the, 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 the key here is to recognize I'm persuaded uh, and again this so even as I go through this the the difference is going to be in how how you approach this text is this Solomon as a young man loved by God pursuing the law with all that he has or is this aged jaded Solomon who's got the harem and this is all just sexual exploitation um, my read is that this is anticipatory they do have natural urges they do not act on them though 
That's why you get those early calls here by Solomon himself, is my read of it, like 2 verse 7, not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That there, uh, there is a, a call for sexual purity, and they maintain that prior to uh, the, the, the wedding, prior to the marriage night. Mm-hmm. And even then, uh, like I said, it's like, like I will say, uh, whatever sex occurs happens off screen which is why I think the PG-13 uh-huh. rating is retained. So I'm, I'm just going to throw out a couple outs. Like, let's say somebody wants to keep your approach, but they do see undeniably, like, sexual activity in Chapter 1. So here's a couple outs for, for that camp, right? First, you could say uh, that the sexual activity in Chapter 1 between Solomon and the woman is, uh, is actually after they're married, right? You could just say that even though the marriage is in Chapter 3, you could just say, yeah, <clears throat> it's nonlinear, right? And so the timeline jumps around. And so if they're having sex, uh, it is after their marriage, even if it's before the mention of the marriage, right? So you could just take the nonlinear, like, out uh, in order to explain the sexual activity of chapter one. Another out is you could take some of, of my approach, but still, like, keep it, uh, you know, the uh, the purely and, uh, you know, the monogamous love route, right, where you could say, okay, chapter one, there is sexual activity, but uh, even though there's sexual activity, it's within a dream, and so it's like dreams leading up to the actual marriage, and so you could take that out as well. So I was just wondering, like, you know, because it's not as if there's, like, uh, only two options here, right? You can you can find some middle ground there if you if you want to take one approach but not come to the same uh, interpretive, like, you know, conclusion through each chapter. Okay, so chapter two. Go ahead. Sorry. Chapter two. All right. Chapter, chapter two summary. <laughs> Uh, where was I? Oh, yes, yeah, Lily of the Valley. Um, that's what Solomon affirms about uh, her in uh, 2 verse 2. In fact, uh, she is a lily among thorns, among brambles. Her beauty shows all other women deficient. Uh, indeed, again, they're, they're thorns, they're, they're brambles. The couple continues to enhance their intimacy, so uh, she, she desires to be with Solomon. She so desires that she is lovesick. Uh, verse 5, I am sick with love, she says. She anticipates, looking forward to, laying in his arms. Uh, there's the anticipatory aspect that I mentioned earlier. I take 2 verse 7, uh, as I mentioned, to be Solomon kind of interpreting, uh, interrupting her, I should say, interrupting Shulamith, doing the right thing, doing the right thing of calling his future bride and all other women to maintain purity of thought and action. This is a reversal of Adam, uh, where he is passive and allows his bride to eat of the fruit. Here, Solomon does what Adam failed to do. When temptation is aroused, Solomon says, not today. And so all couples have to contend with the powerful sexual desires that they have before marriage. And God has graciously provided in his word wisdom in this matter. It's right here in Song of Solomon. Now, 2 verse 8 and following is the Shulamite's uh, woman, uh, as she almost uh, breathlessly sees Solomon. Uh, And then verses 10 through 13 is his actual proposal. It is formed by what's called an inclusio. Uh, You have uh, both the introduction and the conclusion uh, bookended by the statement, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Uh, The time has come. Winter is over. Spring is here. Let's get married. Uh, There may also be a sense in which life is winter without her as his bride. 
and that this is before marriage is further seen in her inaccessibility. Uh, he says that, uh, uh, oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff there in verse 14, she's been a wall, not a door. To borrow a phrase that's used later on in the book in chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, which again, I think, demonstrates that these are not people who are sexually active. They have maintained their purity. Caution is needed as the couple anticipates their union. And so you have verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes. There are little foxes which threaten to spoil the vine. And some have proposed that these are maybe other women who are vying for Solomon's attention, though he only has eyes for Shulamite, the Shulamite woman. It could be more general. Anything which could ruin love as designed by God may be in view here. Uh, Nevertheless, the chapter ends with a strong affirmation of mutual desire. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Uh, That's a a formula that will mature as the poem goes along. Uh, We'll see it again uh, later on. And her desire is to be with him all night, verse 17, until the day breathes and shadows flee. Uh, But such desires for sexual intimacy, though they are very real, they're not acted upon because they would subvert God's design for marriage. And so concludes my reading of chapter 2. Alex? Okay, so uh, the way I see chapter 2 is the woman continues to describe the sexual encounter in the forest that she mentions at the end of chapter 1, right? So chapter 1 bleeds into chapter 2. And here in chapter 2, Uh, She recounts in verse 3 how Solomon was uh, like an apple tree in the forest, and she took delight in his shade, and his fruit was sweet to her taste. Which again, that partaking of someone's fruit, uh, that's going to be seen here and later as a euphemism about sex. And so, uh, no, I don't see an Adam stepping up to say, don't eat the fruit yet. It seems like she is saying, I ate it and I liked it. And so the woman, she continues to recount how Solomon brought her to his banquet hall, which is a drinking hall or a house of wine. Uh, That house of wine imagery is is probably alluding again to the constant uh, image of the vineyard where she is the vineyard and uh, a woman's body is a vineyard. Uh, As I mentioned before, vineyard... uh, is that euphemism used in the Song of Solomons? So how does that go with the banquet hall then, or the idea of this place where there's a banner over her? Um, well, this could be the first allusion to the harem. Uh, the banner over her is love. Banners were used to gather military units, right? A group of soldiers designating which uh, military unit, which group they belonged to. This may suggest that the woman, uh, though praised in her dream sequences as being the best, is not the only woman. There may be a whole unit of women gathered under Solomon's love banner. She is, after all, um, the Shulamite that is belonging to Solomon. And we'll continue to get that impression that she's not the only one belonging to Solomon uh, later on as well in the book. Uh, She's lovesick then after this uh, encounter where she's no longer with Solomon. She's lovesick. She asks to be sustained with raisin cakes and apples. Who is she asking? Well, In verse 5, the verbs are plural. So this is likely the chorus of women that we already saw in chapter 1, verse 11. Now, why would she be with all these other women? Perhaps because they're all part of the, quote, banquet hall, right? They're all under that banner in verse 4, belonging to Solomon. The woman in verse 6, no longer with Solomon at the moment, in her lovesickness, 
starts remembering the encounter that she had with him, their sexual encounters, wishing that she could be embraced by him once more. Now, here's a here's an important note of difference is uh, our, our interpretation of verse 7, because then this refrain, chapter 2, verse 7, we'll see it again in 3, 5, we'll see it again in 8, 4. Uh, my take on this refrain is that it's spoken by the woman, and it's adjuring the other women not to awaken love until she pleases, which... Uh, I think that may be the first indicator in the text that this so far has been a pleasant dream, and she wishes not to be woken up. A dream sequence, it makes sense out of the frequent scenery changes. You know, first, just even this, these first two chapters, she's in the king's chambers, and then she's looking for where he pastures, and then she's at the king's table, and then they're in the forest, and then she's in the king's banquet hall, and now she'll be described next as being in the mountains. Uh, verses 8 through 9. She's envisioning Solomon coming to see her in those mountains, leaping and climbing like a young stag, uh, which paints the picture of a, of a deer in rut. Uh, interestingly, in verse 9, she says that Solomon is standing behind our wall. So that's plural, indicating she's not alone, but likely with the chorus of women. Apparently, she has uh, not been with him all winter. Uh, she, she's been without him all winter, right? So... She's, uh, he says, not to fret, though. Winter's over. Spring has arrived. Now it's time to prune the vines. What does that mean? You know, that's strange. Pruning uh, grapevines is best done in early winter, uh, not spring. Perhaps he's not talking about vines, right? Again, sexual euphemism. This abounds in the letter. The woman is the vineyard. Solomon wants to do some, quote, pruning with her. In other words, more sex. What Solomon describes is the land being fertile in springtime. But we know it's not literally about spring because he mentions figs being ripened, but figs don't ripen until the summer or the fall. And that's fine. That's okay. You know, these don't have to comport to physical reality because he's not talking about figs. He's talking about his own sexual desires, now being ready for her again. He wants to see her again, inviting her to come out with him. So the woman responds and says, they have a little problem. You know, little foxes have been ruining the vineyards. Not that they might ruin the vineyards. They have been ruining the vineyards. This has been happening. It's already happening. But uh, she says it's, it's while the vineyards are in blossom. So first this hour is plural, right? And so remembering that vineyards are here representative for women, this places the, women, the woman in a group of women who have likely been visited by unwanted suitors, these little foxes. Now, the woman says that they ruined the vineyards in bloom. In other words, some men have been having sex with the women. But Solomon is not to worry. She affirms her fidelity remains intact by saying, my beloved is mine and I am his. And he pastures his flock among the lilies. That little phrase, you know, we already know from two, from verse one that she is the lilies. And his flock being pastured among her is another sexual euphemism. And that same sexual euphemism will pop up again uh, a couple more times in the book. So the chapter ends with another interesting refrain seen here. And then again in chapter four, verse six, which says, until the cool of day when the shadows flee away. In other words, until the early morning sunrise, which means that these things are likely happening while she's sleeping, thus the series of dream, dream sequences. And uh, yeah, now we're on to chapter three. Okay, so this chapter begins with a dream sequence, verses 1 through 4. There's, and what's in back of this uh, dream seems to be the fear of losing her beloved. I sought him, but found him not. And the resolution 
is that the nightmare turns to a dream when she finds him and they retire into a place of uh, safety and uh, privacy. Once again, Solomon interjects uh, there in 3 uh, verse 5 as uh, the door is closing uh, here before the dream stampedes out of control, so to speak. Solomon is basically saying, look, you got to keep your genes in your genes, all right? Maintain sexual purity. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, verse 5 says. And then from 3-6 to the conclusion of the chapter, you do get the wedding procession. Uh, two and a half chapters have led up to this. There's been a lot of anticipation. And most see uh, here in, what, uh, 3 verses 6 and 7, Mostly Solomon arriving on his litter. However, later usage of this imagery is unquestionably referring to the Shulamith woman in 6 verse 10 and 8 verse 5. And so Solomon has provided his bride with a dope ride and security for the day of his wedding. That's why you have the 60 mighty men, some mighty men of Israel. Uh, It's the protection unit. And then he too has a carriage there in 3 and verse 9. It's decked out with all kinds of precious metals and stones. Each possesses what is desirable to the other. Uh, Scents and aromas to drive him crazy, the Coco Chanel of their day, shall we say. And then gems and metals, which he gives to her. Uh, Everybody who is anybody, will be there for the joyous celebration as the call goes out in 3 verse 11. And uh, my reading of chapter 3 ends there. Alex, take it away. So most commentators do agree that this chapter starts with a dream, but as I've pointed out in the previous chapter, this could be the continuation of a dream as well. Uh, The woman can't find Solomon. She goes looking for him in the city, and then tension rises as the guards find her. Uh Uh-oh. But... Before the guards can do anything, Solomon shows up, embraces her, and then the dream sequence changes into another scene. They're no longer in the city. Now where are they? Oh, they're in her mother's house and in her mother's bed. That's strange. Uh, (laughs) To me, this sounds obviously like some sort of sex dream. And it's unclear, you know, where her mother's house is. Why, Why would she bring him there instead of his palace, right? I think the house is actually this secret brothel hidden in the mountains, owned by Solomon for the purpose of producing virgins for him, uh, and that this is the house she dreams of bringing him to. This is the place, the only place she knows, right? Her mother then being this sort of house mother in charge of her, quote, brothers, uh, her brothers then, quote, being uh, in, uh, I'm tripping over my words, <laughs> The house mother is in charge, and then you have her, quote, brothers, being then the guards of the house, tasked with keeping them virgins. This will play out more in chapter 8, where these virgins are priced and sold. Now, the refrain of chapter 2, verse 7, is again seen here in chapter 3, verse 5. Again, I don't think it's uh, Solomon saying, maintain purity. I I think it's uh, the woman saying, don't wake me up from my dream. I guess it could be him saying, don't wake her up from her nice dream, because he's the one writing this. Then there's another rapid scene change, right? Scene change, scene change, scene change. And Solomon, this time, he's coming up from the wilderness in procession. Why? Well, we don't know why he's coming from the wilderness. 
But there he is, lying on his couch, carried by and guarded by 60 soldiers. The soldiers are said to guard Solomon from the terror of the night, which, as we said in the intro, it was a night demon called Lilith. That's the underlying language there. Again, this indicates the dream world. Swords can't kill Lilith. She's not a physical being. She's a spiritual being. So the chapter ends with the woman encouraging all the women to look upon Solomon on the day of his wedding, and it just kind of leaves it there before entering into uh, chapter four. So that's the way I see it. Nick, what do you see in chapter four? Yeah, so after the wedding, the couple retires in privacy, and, and Solomon drinks in and celebrates his the, the beauty of his new bride. And to a modern Western American reader, a flock of shorn ewes and towers and gazelles feeding among the lilies sounds strange, but this was the world familiar to Solomon and uh, Shulamith. This was highbrow in their day. What is aesthetically pleasing is the ability of Solomon to utilize highly poetic language without becoming crass or pornographic. This is uh, typical for the description that's found here of her by him, and also the description that's found in 5 verses 10 and following of him by her. But if the poetic imagery misses you, Solomon states what he is saying plainly in 4 verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. All along the way, even though this is a night they've anticipated and waited for some time, Solomon is mindful of his bride. He is sensitive to her needs. He admires her beauty, profusely praising her with words of admiration, which is what uh, verses 1 through 8 are all about. And then he turns from her external beauty and extols her character, beginning in verse 9. How beautiful... Uh, is your love, verse 10, I should say. How beautiful is your love? She's been diligent of keeping herself for him. She's a locked garden, been a locked garden, even to Solomon. She has been a woman of integrity. And as her heart has been captivated uh, by, as his heart has been captivated by her, so she has been captivated by him. And after 16 verses of Solomon giving to his bride what she needs to enhance their night together, increasing their desire for one another, she merely breathes the word. Verse 16b, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And notice that while Solomon is the epitome, the epitome of manhood to her, he is gentle with her, and he does not take what is rightfully his. She opens the garden, and it is his garden. And off screen, they indulge their hearty appetites with one another. And so concludes my read of chapter four. What about you, Alex? So uh, you did say at the end of chapter four, when uh, he gets to to partake of her fruits, that that's that's their sexual union, right? That's her invitation to him to do so. So is the fruit tasting sex there? In that, in that instance where she is inviting him to come to his garden, yes. But the fruit tasting in 2-3 is not sex, in your view. Uh, if anything, as I said before, it is anticipatory. And then again, you have 2 verse 7, which is the, the call from Solomon, my perspective, that is uh, saying, we're not doing this. Is it, is this it, is not going to be pleasing to God. Is it uh, natural to see it as anticipatory when she says, I have tasted of his fruit, like it, she speaks as a past event in 2-3? Oh, oh, I, okay, 2-3. Yeah, yeah, so uh, one thing that you miss here uh, is um, 
what she is communicating about Solomon as being the fairest of all. That's the emphasis there for 2-3. So when she says, his fruit was sweet to my taste, when I sat under the delight of his uh, shade as an apple tree, Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. she says his fruit was sweet to my taste, that's not sex. But when it says that he partakes of her fruit in the garden in chapter 4, that that is sex. Different context, the overarching context of the book must also be uh, considered there as well. And don't forget that how this started here in 1 verse 2. Mm-hmm. Your love is better than wine. Okay. Uh, so sweetness, the love there can certainly be the, the sweetness uh, that's involved with the fruit. But again, we're, we're different trajectories on this. So <laughs> A little difficult though, right? You know, to take the same metaphor, the same, Not the same imagery. I don't think and to, so. And to make it mean different things. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. Chapter four. Well, here we have Solomon speaking the whole chapter, right? Except at the end. And first he describes her beauty from head down to her breasts. I guess no love for the legs, huh? But uh, then he invites the woman to join him to come down from the mountains. You get that in verse eight. Uh, This is in line with her house being hidden away in the mountains with the other women, as we saw in chapter two. And so in her dreams, uh, Solomon brings the caravan and the wedding procession to her all the way to the mountains, right? As opposed to like real life when they would probably have her come to the palace, but whatever. And he calls her out of her secluded location to come down and be his bride. Now, of course, uh, the woman has been a locked garden for every other man except Solomon. Uh, Solomon has been in that garden, uh, apparently, in chapter 1, chapter 2. Uh she affirmed that in chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 16, that she doesn't want the flocks of other men. She's not going to do that. Uh, she's not going to let her vineyard get ruined by little foxes uh, like some of the other vineyards had been. So she invites him into her garden at the end of chapter 4 to enjoy its choice fruits, a euphemism for their sexual encounter. In fact, eating one another's fruits was the euphemism already described by her in chapter 2, verse 3, when she tasted Solomon's fruit, describing him as an apple tree, in the forest. Well, chapter 5, Nick, what do you see? Between 4.16 and 5.1, out of sight of the reader, is where the couple engages in sexual intercourse for the first time. Again, it's off screen. That's why we come back in 5 verse 1, and Solomon in the past tense says, I came to my garden, I gathered, I ate, I drank. Uh, And then there's the enigmatic encourager at the end of 5 verse 1, Uh, In my English standard, it's labeled as others, but that's been supplied by the translators. Uh, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Well, who is it? Is it friends? Is it the others? I actually prefer to hear the voice of Yahweh giving approval of the enjoyment of his good gift, sex, properly expressed in the marriage covenant. God saying, eat, friends, drink. That's be drunk with love. It's It's intended to be a good thing. Now, no sooner as the couple consummated the marriage. Then the real work of marriage begins, and anyone who's married knows marriage requires work. The romantic idealization of chapters 1 through 4 gives way to the reality of the real world. In other words, the honeymoon is over. What begins as a dream swiftly turns to a nightmare in 5 verses 2 and following. Solomon comes home late. Uh, Verse 2 says his, his head is wet with dew, the drops of the night. What was he doing? Who was he with? Uh, Why is he out so late? We don't know. What we know is he's looking for love. Uh, He talks her up, all all the 
the sweet pet names he can use for her. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He just uh, is, can't get him out fast enough. And the invitation there is open to me, uh, verse 2. This is a midnight booty call. And so they can do that, by the way, because they're married. <laughs> verse 3 is uh, where she, what's she doing? Is she teasing? Uh, is she offering excuses why she can't? I got a headache. Uh, I put my I put off my garment. How can I put it on? I bathe my feet. How could I soil them again? Uh, so some kind of refusal, playful or otherwise, offering some say flimsy excuses. But it is a striking contrast to the pre-wedding Shulamite woman who got out of bed to find Solomon back in the dream sequence there in 3, verses 1 and 2. Verse 4, Solomon presses the issue. Hand could be. It's not the only way that... Uh, could be understood, but it could be used as a euphemism for the male member there in 5 verse 3. Uh, and that seems to upset her. Uh, my heart was thrilled within me. It could be um, frenzied. She's mad. Uh, but uh, verse 5, maybe a, a reconsideration here. Fine, she got up. I arose from my bed. My hands dripping with myrrh. Could be aphrodisiac language that's used here. But verse 6, Solomon's gone. Perhaps in anger, he stormed out, and try as she might, she can't find him. And if that's not bad enough, the nightmare takes a very dark turn as watchmen find her, beat her, wound her, and take her veil. Now, this, if anyone who's been married for any amount of time tells you we've never had a crossword, um, yeah, right. Uh, any couple that does not pay the smart price for, co- uh, the, the, the smart price for intimacy through conflict, uh, they... They don't, they're either uh, whitewashing the past or they're just kind of overlooking what happened or, or what every couple has these kinds of spats where they get into it. Both people are guilty. Uh, he's guilty, she's guilty in one way or another, and they've stormed off, and now there's tension, there's stress in the relationship. And so, uh, verse. Uh, eight, she's sick with love. She's looking for him now, as it were. So did the dream, has the dream reflected some kind of reality? Dreams can do that sometimes, right? Where they uh, they bring to our conscience, either conscious or subconscious type things. Whatever happens here, the others interject and they say, uh, let us help you, daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, what? what's so special about him anyway, right? And now comes the moment of truth. Will Shulamith rake Solomon over the coals? Will she tear him down in front of her gal pals? Will she question, why am I with him in the first place? It's actually none of the above. In fact, if this is merely microwaved ancient Near Eastern love poems, it's certainly uncommon because here is a song from her point of view expressing her admiration for several of Solomon's traits and attributes, these words of affirmation. And so verses 10 and following, Shulamith unpacks all the things she admires about Solomon, beginning with how he's the best man of all. He's distinguished among 10,000. In her eyes, he's the epitome of manhood. And then uh, verse 6, his mouth is sweet. Uh, his kisses taste like honey, in other words. And he's the one that I want. Here she's, she's channeling Sandy from Greece. And you're the one that I want, right? And, and don't miss the end of verse 16 there. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Song of Solomon repeatedly shows that love is built on character and friendship. Uh, And as this continues to go along, what we'll see is uh, it's not rooted primarily on sex. Sex is a good 
thing in the marriage relationship, but marriage must be dependent upon character and friendship, and, and both Solomon and the Shulamite have uh, both of those things in view as, uh, well, we'll get to the makeup part. But that's my read on chapter 5. Alex, what do you got? So just a quick pl- point of clarity. Uh, when you read it, where does the dream start again? 5-2. Chapter 5, verse 2. And where does the dream end when you're reading it? Uh, probably where the others speak, perhaps. Verse 9. Verse 9. Sure, so- that'd be a good place. That'd be a good break. Um, however, I mean, you got verse 8. Now she starts talking... Uh, to the daughters of Jerusalem. So that could be the break, too. Verse 8. So uh, why do you think that's the end of the dream? Like in verse 8, is she's awake now? Because she is addressing the daughters of Jerusalem. She's she's telling the dream to somebody. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and then you were saying that the dream then that she had is a subconscious uh, commentary on her current relationship with Solomon? Is that what you were saying? Could be, yeah. Uh, if en- Again, if anything, it's certainly uh, demonstrating that they're uh, how long after the wedding? Don't know. But they've had some kind of conflict. It happens with every couple. And now we're, we're navigating through the real world hard work of marriage. So uh, two things there. In chapter 6, when you get to verse uh, one, the chorus that the of women that she's talking to in chapter five, verse eight, where you think the dream ends, uh, the chorus says in chapter six, verse one, uh, "Let us help you, like come find him." Right? Uh, where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So she has not found him yet, right? So, right. so in the dream, she can't find him. She tells the women. Uh, and then the, after she describes the Solomon to the women, the women say, let us help you find him. So if he was lost in the dream, are you saying that he was also, if he was lost to her in the dream, that he was also lost to her in real life so that when she wakes up, uh, she needs these women to help help her find him? That seems to be what's going on there. The, the dream is a reflection of something that has happened in real life. And uh, now... Huh. Now we're on the reconciliation path, <laughs> as opposed to this being just one giant, uh, fervent sex dream, uh, which uh, where in one one does that indicate that this is a dream? I guess would be the, the question I would ask in return. You certainly have dream language, and it's introduced as such mm-hmm. in 3.1 and 5.2. Wow. But I don't see how you can start off the book with that. You have to read that back into it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of reading back into the text going on from uh, uh, both sides here, isn't there? Uh, and that's the, that's the difficulty with the book, isn't it? So I would just say, you know, from your perspective, uh, I personally don't like being held responsible for things that my wife dreams about. <laughs> you know, real Alex is not responsible for dream Alex's actions. Let's just say that, you know. <laughs> Surely, that's fair. Unless, surely, unless there's something in real life that yeah. has prompted that dream, which is, I think, fair. Sure, I'm, I. That's why you, you can, get the you real life read, reconciliation between the two. And you, and you're welcome to read that back into it. I'm just saying, in real life, I uh, think it's funny when, like, and this is an experience that many couples have, right? Uh, the your wife is angry at you, but she's angry at you for something you did in her dream. <laughs> she, I've heard this many, many times. 
lots of different couples is a strange phenomenon. I think the Babylon Bee actually did a, an article on it saying that uh, the Supreme Court rules that uh, man, husband can be legally accountable for what he does in his wife's dreams. <laughs> so anyway, uh, or yeah, maybe this is, uh, you know, go Sigmund Freud on it. Go ahead. It's a reflection of real life. Well, uh, my take, chapter 5, uh, five one starts off with Solomon recounting his sexual encounter with the woman, which is encouraged to continue by an anonymous character. Although I think it's likely that the character is the chorus of women who have already been seen in earlier chapters. Uh, most commentators agree that another dream sequence begins in 5-2. That's what you think, but you think it ends at 5-8. Um, you know, it's hard to tell when the last dream sequence in chapter 3, verse 1 officially stops. And so that's part of why I continue to see a strong possibility that these are dream sequences strung together. Uh, in the woman's dream, then, Solomon shows up at her house uh, with locks drenched in dew, which is likely a euphemism for sexual desire. Like he's, he's in heat, right? He's hot for her. Uh, he knocks at her door, but she playfully teases him, saying, oh, you know, I've already, I've already washed my feet. I've already taken off my dress. She's like, well, that's, it's playful, right? She doesn't have her dress on. Like, what? You're naked? And so she goes to open the door. Finally, you know, the, the banter, the teasing ends. She goes to open the door because she sees his hand coming through the opening. But what is this? Oh, no. He has disappeared. Where is he? And with another drastic scene change, she's in the city, right? She goes from her house to the city looking for Solomon uh, unsuccessfully. And this time, you know, when the guards find her, as opposed to chapter three, uh, Solomon does not come to her rescue. Instead, the guards find her, beat her, strip her. And this part of the dream is definitely a nightmare, right? Yikes. So the woman in verse 8, she adjures the daughters of Jerusalem, as she has several times in the poem already. But this time it's an adjuration to relay a message. Relay the message that I am lovesick. So the chorus of women respond by asking for a description of Solomon. Well, tell us what, he, what he's like. Uh, tell us what he looks like. And that results in her physical description of him for the rest of the chapter. Even a description in verse 14 of his pubic area. It says his abdomen is carved ivory. You know, she's not talking about a six-pack. Okay, six-pack abs? Not, that's not it. The underlying Hebrew, the word is used to refer to, it's literally intestines, right? But it refers to the loins, the loins. And it's not surprising because, you know, you have a euphemism for his pubic area in verse 14, but there'll be a euphemism for her pubic area later on in uh, chapter 7, I think it is. So that's the end of chapter 5. Uh, Nick, chapter 6, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, Shulamith's poem extolling her beloved's attribute shows that while the relationship is strained it remains intact and so the daughters of jerusalem offer to help reunite the couple here in six verse one uh, that we may seek him with you but shulamith doesn't need any help as her beloved has uh, gone down to his garden uh, which in other places has been uh, utilized for uh, her four sixteen five verse one uh, but this culminates in Shulamith reaffirming their mutual possession of one another, though with slight change, which emphasizes the development of selfless intimacy. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. So there's a, a reversal there. Beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 10, this is Solomon's turn now to assure Shulamith of his abiding affection for her. 
And this is the part, I guess, in the Boys to Men song where they would do that spoken word bit, you know, girl, you know, I, I didn't mean to, whatever, right? And they do their, their spoken word bit in the breakdown. That's what Solomon is doing here. He extols her beauty. He extols her character. He deliberately avoids the erotic language of the wedding night. Instead, he's focusing on reconciliation with her. In verses uh, 8 and 9, this is Solomon channeling the flamingos three million years before they existed. You know, the old crooning, I only have eyes for you. It's clear that Shulamith surpasses all these other women. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, Solomon says. Uh, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. And that's why all the other women uh, praise her. She is uh, the perfect one. And he concludes in verse 10 with that rhetorical question, who's like her? Uh, who's like her? Uh, no one is like his perfect one. Once reconciled, uh, verses 11 and 12, uh, some take that to be Solomon's advances for uh, sexual intimacy, sexual union with Shulamith. Though admittedly, the verses are difficult. They're notoriously difficult. Verse 12 especially, what's going on there? Others, though, take it as Solomon channeling the carpenters. Got a lot of musical references in this chapter for me. Um, where he's on top of the world, looking down on creation, right? He's just uh, over the moon, elated. And then verse 13, the others, the chorus, uh, they want to see Shulamith's beauty, that we may look upon you, they say, but Solomon denies them this privilege. And some take that because the rest of verse uh, 13 uh, talks about this dance, and some interpret that as Shulamith is literally dancing for Solomon, but it's a private show for Solomon's eyes only. Or it could be that the dance is euphemistic for what goes on behind closed doors between Solomon and Shulamith. And again, it's away from prying eyes. Uh, so that's the conclusion of chapter 6 for me. Chapter, uh, Alex, chapter 6 for you. So I see chapter 6 as the dream continuing, right? The nightmare that had uh, begun in chapter 5. Uh, it turns back into a pleasant experience in chapter 6. You have the chorus of women offering to come help the woman to find Solomon. Uh, verses 2 through 3 describes a sexual reunion between Solomon and the woman, using sexual euphemism like pasturing his flocks in her lily garden. You know, language that we already saw in chapter 1, verse 7, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 16. And so after their sexual reunion, Solomon praises the woman for her beauty for the rest of the chapter. Some points of interest, I think, would include verse 8, where Solomon mentions that she is unique among 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. Now, we all know that Solomon ended up with an outrageous number of wives and concubines by the end of his life. If his intention was just to communicate that the woman was unique among all other women, then the number 60 for queens and the number 80 for concubines serves no purpose but to add confusion. If what he really meant is that all queens and all concubines in the world don't compare to her. You could just say all, right? Why is he actually saying 60 queens, 80 concubines? It's because he's saying that his 60 queens and his 80 concubines are not as good as her. She's number one. A point of exaggeration occurs here as well, where the woman dreams of all those queens, the 60 queens and the 80 concubines and all the maidens praising her for her beauty. And this really hardly seems believable since it would be only natural for those women to see themselves as the most beautiful, to see themselves as Solomon's number one. But hey, a girl can dream. Well, 
Solomon can write about a girl dreaming, but anyway. Verse 13, we have the woman for the first time called a Shulamite, which I think likely means belonging to Solomon. Uh, the question was, in what way does she belong to Solomon? Well, she belongs to him as one of her women, uh, one, one of his women. And so the end of chapter 6 uh, is actually a little confusing, but it seems that you know when we get to chapter sol- uh, 7, Solomon, he just is continuing in his dialogue about his admiration for the Shulamite woman. Um, quick question, you know, because while you were talking, you know, I'm pretty sure you were you were acknowledging that uh, in six three, where you know it says he pastures his flock among her lilies, that you, you agree that's them having sex, right? Uh. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I'll buy that. So when the same thing happens in chapter two, verse sixteen, you anticipatory. You don't think it's them having sex. It's anticipatory, as I said before. Ah, okay. All right. Um, do you have any thoughts on why you think he mentioned sixty queens and eighty concubines? Why he puts a number on those? Poetic flavor. <laughs> Solomon's a lyrical gangster, man. Wow, you're impressive, sir. I'm impressed with you. Chapter seven. <laughs> Go ahead. Give the summary. <laughs> You know, the the sexual revolution has aimed at sexual liberation in the mainstream. And unfortunately, it has only bred disease, disorder, and death. However, the Holy Spirit, through Song of Songs, offers true sexual freedom in the bonds of marriage as Yahweh intended. And so here in chapter 7, verses 1 through the first part of verse 9, are the most erotic section of the book, and they present a vibrant sexual relationship between a married couple. Beginning with her feet, Solomon moves up her body, using all the language he previously omitted during the reconciliation portion. And again, the images, they're foreign to us, perhaps even absurd. Nevertheless, what we miss being three millennia removed, Solomon makes explicit right here in 7 verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. This is highbrow courting, Again, not merely for the ancient Near Eastern context, there is that, but for this couple specifically, uh, it is, uh, it, 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 it's right down to each of these uh, two individuals that make up this one marriage unit. Uh, and so you're going to get the, the pet names. You're going to get uh, the uh, inside information uh, that is even unique to them that maybe others will never get, but... It uh, certainly demonstrates their intimacy and a level of intimacy that is good and is healthy for couples. Now, don't miss the overturning, at least in part, of the curse of Genesis 3 and verse 16 and 7 and verse 10. Because of the curse, the woman's desire shall be for or against her husband, but he shall rule over you. Genesis 3.16 says that. Now, though... Through the blessing of marriage and sexual intimacy, the destructive elements of the curse are undone to a degree. At least in part, God's intention for marriage is that it is a means whereby the curse is undone. And so she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. There's a reverse. Now the chapter concludes with the uh, Shulamite woman now taking the lead inviting her husband in language echoing his from earlier in the book to come away, come. Uh, There in 7 verse 11 echoes to verse uh, 10 and also verse 13, the marriage proposal, uh, come away 
and they are going to delight in one another sexually. There I will give you my love, she says uh, very, very boldly in uh, 7 verse 12. Here is, again, the sexual freedom God intends in marriage, the enjoyment of the fruit of their love within the marriage relationship. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, so concludes chapter 7 reading from me. Alex? Yeah, so chapter 7, as I see it, the woman's dream continues, and it continues to have points of exaggeration, right? Dreamlike uh uh, excellent or well, dreamlike descriptions. So the woman dreams of Solomon calling her the daughter of a prince, but this is obviously not the case. She has no royal lineage as seen in chapter one. She's a day laborer. She's tanned by the sun. Uh, Solomon calls this woman's belly, quote, belly, a heap of wheat, which is likely a mu- euphemism for her pubic area. Uh, Solomon describes her Naked body likens it to a tree that he would like to climb and enjoy its fruits. Again, the euphemism uh, we've seen several times in the song, especially about her body being the vineyard, calling her breasts clusters of the vine in verse 8. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 10, we see another refrain, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That's similar to what we saw in chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, The woman invites Solomon on this sexual excursion out in the country to go into the, quote, vineyards, which are likely places of sexual encounter, perhaps reminiscent of their sexual encounters outside in the wilderness, like we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The language of the vines, quote, budding and blossoming, that speaks, I think, to sexual arousal in verse 12, which is important to notice because that same language was already used in chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 13, and verse 15, chapter 6, verse 11. So there is a consistent use, I think, of these words, of these images. The mentioning of the mandrakes in verse 13, uh, that likely refers to an aphrodisiac based on a cross-reference to Genesis 30, verse 14, right, where uh, Rachel wants... uh, Leah to give her some mandrakes so that she can sleep with uh, Jacob. The woman's invitation to Solomon to come out on this excursion, that ends chapter 7 and uh, brings us to chapter 8. I would ask, you know, the same question, Nick, but I think it's, uh, you're going to say, chapter 1, chapter 2, anticipatory, but the rest of it, it's yeah. it's actual. actual. So, uh, glad I answered your question. Yeah, glad. <laughs> Glad you could answer that for me. Chapter 8, what do you see? So there's a, they're continuing to build the enjoyment of intimacy, even sexual intimacy. And Shulamith, uh, she hypothetically desires to enjoy social or public displays of affection. Uh, not unlike, uh, I guess, what a, a brother and sister would enjoy, right? We maybe don't... Uh, experience that like they did in the ancient Near East uh, with uh, the display of affection between a brother and a sister. But that's what they had. And now here, um, she says, well, I wish I could do, I could have that public display of affection with my husband, but they can't because the ancient Near Eastern culture prohibited that. And so she instead will settle for the private and safe setting of the house of my mother, uh, there in verse 2. And is there they can satisfy their natural and good desires for one another sexually. Uh, there in uh, verse 3, his left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. I know you have that earlier in uh, what, chapter 2? It's anticipatory. Let me go ahead and preemptively answer your question there. Now, the encouragement to delay gratification, especially sexual gratification, 
uh, as we've seen previously spoken uh, before the wedding, it's once more affirmed there in 8 verse 4, not to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, Fun fact, verses 6 and 7, these were verses that we actually had read at our wedding ceremony. My wife and I had these verses read uh, by my dad. Uh, during our wedding ceremony. Uh, There are several elements that are necessary for love to grow and continue, which are here presented poetically. And I would just say, to answer a question you posed earlier, or at least made a statement about, where is God? Right here. 8 verse 6, his name, Yahweh, is specifically mentioned. Now, in keeping with the call for purity, attention is turned to a sister. And the question is posed, Will she be a wall or a door? And it seems that these are images that are intended to communicate the potential premarital sexual actions of the sister. Shulamith affirms that her premarital status was as a wall. It was a good thing, by the way. She was one who finds peace. And I don't think it's uh, accidental that you have close proximity to the name Solomon in the very next verse. Uh, His name, again, you have the... uh, the play there on words of peaceful and peace and uh, all those things uh, mixing in there linguistically. But uh, again, she was a wall, even to Solomon there in the early chapters of the book. Now the song concludes with both Solomon and Shulamith echoing desires expressed earlier in the song. He had earlier expressed his desire to hear your voice to verse 14, and that is repeated here in verse 13. Let me hear it. Uh, verse 13 ends. And she earlier expressed how she desired for him to be like a gazelle or a young stag back in 2 and verse 17. Well, this is something she continues to, to desire in the marriage there in verse 14. Now, both marriage partners show that marriage has not cooled their desire for one another. In fact, it has deepened as time goes by, which is the way marriage ought to be as designed by God. Far from being a man-made institution intent on continuing the patriarchy or a prison which stifles passion and complicates love, marriage is God-ordained. And when honored in the way he designed, it enhances intimacy, it deepens passion, and love blossoms. And so concludes my read of Song of Songs. Alex, conclude it. Yeah, so chapter 8, a lot of things in chapter 8, a little disjointed, right? Again, a lot of scene uh, changes that take place. So the woman here uh, expresses uh, at the beginning of chapter 8 her desire for their relationship to be open, that she could kiss him publicly without being despised. There's no clear reason for why that would be the case, why she would be despised for kissing him openly. I actually have not found uh, anything uh, historically that would say that would be culturally inappropriate. Um, This indicates, I think, you know, for some reason, their relationship is a secret. It's not open, but why is it a secret? I would propose, based on what the end of the chapter says, that it's because uh, this woman was sleeping with Solomon before he paid for her that thousand shekel price tag for a virgin. Uh, The wedding was just a dream. She can't be his legitimate wife and queen in real life. Uh, The woman continues to express her desire to have more sex with Solomon, bringing him openly without secret into her mother's household. Uh, And she says this all the while, remembering their past sexual encounters in verse 3. His left hand under my head, his right hand embracing me. And she had those same memories in chapter 2, verse 6. 
And, you know, it's interesting. Why, why not go to the palace? Why go to her mom's house? It, again, it just, it, it's because it doesn't mean what it says. <laughs> That's how euphemism works. That's how the whole song works. In verse four, we see that final refrain that we saw in chapter two, verse seven, chapter three, verse five, do not awaken my love until she pleases. Uh, this leads us, I think, to the end of the dream. Uh, you know, it's such a nice dream. Don't wake me up, she says. Now, like the procession of Solomon out of the wilderness um, uh, to come claim her for a bride in chapter 3, and so we here get kind of that same imagery in chapter 8, verse 5. Solomon proceeds up from the wilderness. He says, uh, beneath the apple tree, I awakened you, uh, which harkens back to their sexual encounter that she recounted in chapter 2, verse 3, under his apple tree. And that awakening language is, again, the language of arousal, sexual arousal. And then we have another mention of the woman's mother, but this time it's recount it's recounting uh, the, the woman being born, the Shulamite being born to this mother under the apple tree. Um, it's That's strange. That's confusing. You know, I don't, I haven't seen anybody really explain that very well. Most people don't know what to make out of it. Um, you know, you just have the following verses. That's why it's feels so disjointed. And so you got, you know, verses six through seven, then you got this next section that I think, you know, verses six and seven is pretty awesome in its own right. Like if you just read verses six through seven, just, just like lift it up out of Solomon and just like put it on a plaque, like that's awesome. Right. And so cut it out of the text, put it on a plaque. Those are good verses. Maybe that's why, you know, the, the, the book was kept is for, for those two verses. It is the only place where you get the name of Yahweh. He's not really a part of the story, but I mean, at least you get a little mention, I guess, of his name. Well, in verse eight, you get a different, you know, scene happening. Now we have uh, the brothers speaking for the first time in what seems to be an agreement on their part to protect the virginity of their sister, right? Her sister is spoken for, it says, but the brothers will guard her until she is what sounds like to be sexually ready since she currently, as it states in verse 8, has no breasts, right? She, her body's not ready for sex yet. But then we hear the woman speak in verse 10, and she's saying, ah, now she is sexually ready. She has matured into a woman's body. And then things get a little dicey here in verse 11. You have... Uh, Verse 11 saying, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each vineyard brought a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. Now it's abundantly clear by this time at the end of the letter that a vineyard is a woman's body. It, the fruit of the vineyard is sex. Solomon owns a field of vineyards here where each one brings, each vineyard brings uh, a thousand shekels for its fruit. That's the price tag. So these are women who Solomon will pay a thousand shekels of silver to have sex with. They are virgins in the house of their mother and protected and guarded by their mother's sons, these brothers who agree to protect them until they are ready. This sounds like a harem that raises virgins for King Solomon. Uh, the woman says that she gets to choose who gets her vineyard, and she chooses Solomon. She doesn't accept the thousand shekels, telling Solomon to keep the money, except for the 200 shekels that are owed to the caretakers. This is done because she has fallen in love with Solomon, as stated in chapter 8, verse 7, where she says, If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. So that's what she's doing. She's saying, you don't have to pay me my thousand shekel price tag. You keep it because love can't be bought. 
And so you have verses 13 and 14 concluding with Solomon and the, and the woman affirming their desire to be with, with each other. And uh, that's the end of the dream. So there you go. Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Doesn't it sound like the best song ever written? So I guess for uh, clarification, you have uh, consistently walked through the text of Song of Songs from the perspective that this is the fever sex dream of a woman as written by Solomon. Hats off to you for that, no small task. (laughs) And I guess my question would be, uh, based on one verse one, what in one verse one indicates that this is a dream? Nothing in one verse one indicates it's a dream. The first indication, as I said in the chapter summaries, the first indication that you get that this might be a dream is the refrain in chapter 2, verse 7. That's all I needed, all my questions. Okay. Good question. Hey, you've been asking some good ones too. Wow, thank you, sir. Well done. Maybe this will uh, make people battle over the Song of Solomon and they'll pull it out of its dusty recesses and bring it back into the theological forefront here. Is that what we're doing? Revolutionizing theological (laughs) debate? I think that's what we've done. Every episode. (laughs) Every episode. (laughs) Well, why don't you give us, uh, Nick, the conclusion here. uh, Your conclusion about uh, our study here. Wrap up, wrap down. Unfortunately, this is not happily ever after. Uh, While Solomon in his youth maintains purity before the law, he... From my perspective, he enters into his first marriage in a God-honoring way. He even deals with conflict and stress in the relationship in a God-honoring manner. We know how the rest of the story goes. We have First Kings, and we can only speculate as to why Solomon does what he does. Why does he drive the morality bus off the cliff? Whatever happened to Solomon? In fact, uh, several years ago, I wrote a sermon by that title where I explored Uh, all of the goodness and godliness that Solomon has in his life, all the blessings and benefits uh, that show up in his life, and then follow that up with a category of just the way he stumbles across the finish line of life. What happened? What happened here? And, you know, we we could speculate um, at length about what happened. Maybe Maybe the Shulamite woman died, and in his grief, Solomon grew angry with Yahweh. Well, I've, I've heard that story, where uh, a, a spouse dies, and the widow or widower turns inward and, and bitter at God because of what happened, and abandons faith. Maybe, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so as king, he grew more and more accustomed to getting what he wanted, Yahweh notwithstanding. Well, I mean, that sounds familiar. I, I know uh, the stories about individuals who got a little taste of power, got more power, and they were corrupted by it. And so, you know, I, but here's the thing. I don't think it was just one thing. It rarely ever is. I think it's death by a thousand cuts that resulted in the gestalt shift from faithfulness to faithlessness in the life of Solomon. What we know is he knew. He knew what the Lord required. He was even used by Yahweh to record portions of it. Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms. 
he knew better. He just flat turned his back on God. He does not continue to honor marriage as God designed it. And now the temptation is, since we know what happens offstage after the fact, the temptation is to read all of that back into the text, and I think many have done that. But assuming Solomonic authorship with his first bride as a young man when he's still Jedediah, beloved of Yahweh, at best those demons of future past were merely in the shadows. They were yet to happen. But as it stands, as is, this Song of Songs stands as a spirit-inspired testimony to love, even sexual love, wisely delayed, and also love wisely gratified. And I guess one more, just a brief note, and this is, I mentioned it earlier in the introductory material, the, the devotional use of a book like Song of Songs. And I would direct our attention to 7 verse 10, where uh, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. For me, I've, I've incorporated that little verse into my own prayer life where I recognize that I am beloved by God and his desire is for me. God wants me. And I would say to all my brothers and sisters, all my fellow believers, that's a good prayer to pray. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. God not only loves me, but he wants me. And uh, that's, I think, a prayer of, uh, of healing. It's a prayer of faith. And I commend it to our uh, diligent listeners who've been with us now over two hours. So uh, those are my concluding thoughts. Alex, what say you? Yeah, you know, I really, I can, I can sympathize with the desire to sanitize this book into something more wholesome. I wish it was a tome uh, on monogamous love. I wish it was the epitome of the picture that we should have of Christ in the church or Yahweh in Israel. But it, even if I even if I grant that that was the original intention, which I don't think it was, but like let's say I grant it, right? Let's say that was the original intention. However, Holy Spirit inspired you want to say it is, it is uninspiring in the end because of Solomon, because of who he becomes, because of the rest of his story. And that's not the story we want to think of when we think of Christ and his bride, the church. And so I, I can't, I can sympathize with it, but to me, it's no wonder that the book did need an allegorical approach. Um, I'll see this book as an appendix to Ecclesiastes, uh, one of the many adventures of Solomon into the depths of vanity. Uh, how much more vain can you be when you write a play about a woman who can't help but to fantasize about you? It's pretty vain, pretty vain. And those are my concluding thoughts, Nick. And how can the uh, audience help the podcast? Man, we are all over the place. In fact, I just found the other day we're in Audible. Wow. Hey. I had no idea. But it's owned by Amazon, so I guess I shouldn't be too surprised because we're we're there. Right. Uh, the, yep. the, the podcast is in Amazon, in Audible. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcast, um, Google. Does they, do they have a music platform? We're, I don't think so. We're in a number of places. Feel free to go to those respective places, download the episodes, take them with you. Leave a review. That'll help boost our ratings in those respective places. Share it on social media if it's been beneficial to you. And, uh, yeah, that'll help us get the word out about uh, the podcast. That's right. And uh, 
Like we said at the beginning of the podcast, send your questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. They, uh, we also have a line that you can text questions into. Nick gave that number earlier. It's, uh, what is it again, Nick? 316-24-SWORD, 316-247-9673. 316-24-SWORD. And wherever you listen to our podcast, whether it's on iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the, uh, uh, or whatever app that you use on your phone that just pulls from one of those databases, if it's possible, go leave a good review there. And do it this week, because uh, next week when we do our special 100th Swordplay episode, we are going to announce the winners of the Swordplay Swagger. So Hmm. you're going to need to get those reviews left if you want to be entered into the drawing. And then uh, after we poll the winners, we'll need you to send us your mailing address so that we can mail you uh, your cool Swordplay gear. And just a reminder, five stars is the appropriate number of stars for the review. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you again, diligent listener. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you had to take this one in segments. It's a long one. But, you know, we couldn't just roll it over into episode 100. We don't want 100 to be part B of Song of Solomon. That's lame. The 100. Yeah, we want it to be the the 100th celebratory. And so we want to reflect upon our favorite parts of swordplay over the past 100 episodes. And so this has been another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on scripture, and we'll see you next time.